Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, oh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away all your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners will be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For thou shalt be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens you have chosen. For you should be like an oak whose leaf withers, like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Well, let me just say this as uh, we're here this morning to all of you moms in here. Uh, seriously, happy Mother's Day. Um, I think <coughs> it's so true <coughs> what Sheila said. I think there's a burden that a mom bears that uh, those of us that aren't moms don't have a clue about, but yet I'm so thankful God is much bigger than any burden that you might have. And let me just say this also to those of you, my, my wife and I weren't have, able to have children for a while. And I think there's also women in here that are, sometimes the Bible calls just the, the ones that, you know, the mothers, they don't have children. Let me just say this, um, God adores and loves you just as much as everything that, she, that Sheila read towards moms. And so just for all in here, uh, just so thankful you can be here today. But we're in the book of Isaiah. Now, in some ways, you, you heard it, and it sounded so harsh, and you're like, dang, on Mother's Day? 
<laughs> I mean, even verse 21, right, where he pulls out the concept of a, of a, of a, a prostitute, a whore, right? And you're like, wow, where's Todd going on Mother's Day? Well, let me just say, it's not a reflection on any mom that's here, okay? It's actually, I think, a reflection on all of God's people at different ways and in different forms. And so what we've been doing is we've been studying the book of Isaiah, and we've been trying to, kind of what the title says, this cry for awareness, is that in the book of Isaiah, it's a vision. And the cool part about this vision is not so much that he had it like he was going in, you know, to, uh, to have this vision, his head rolled back, or his eyes rolled back in his head, and he hummity hummity It's that this vision is a way of seeing life correctly. That really what he's telling us is that God in his greatness and his goodness to us desires that we see life in reality. The hard part is, is that we as people, we struggle to see life in reality. And so all we can say is praise God that God doesn't want us ignorant, that he's given us his word, he's given us a vision for us to be able to see and to understand life as he intended it. Now, the difficulty we faced in last week was with every person that's here, I don't care who we are, we all have a predisposition. And I love how the song we sang uh, is, and it's kind of a reflection out of the book of Isaiah 53, but we are all prone to wander, aren't we? We lose sight of the greatness of God. We don't mean to. God becomes boring. We kind of put him on a back shelf. And in doing so, then, we begin to even forget who we are. And the Bible says that the moment we forget the greatness and the awe and the wonder of God, God becomes boring. And we forget who he's called us to be as his people, the way he's designed us. The word I used last week in verses 1 through 9 is it's just this downward spiral where finally it hits the bottom and the bottom is found in this place called Sodom and Gomorrah, which a lot of us know it's kind of the lowest of the low of humanity. That, and, and I would just say this, apart from the grace of God, any one of us can get there. And so he's just warning us, don't lose the grandness and the greatness of God. And the way he used it, if you remember last week, was this dad that was crying out to wayward children, begging them to not go down that path. And, and today he's not going to so much be a wayward or a father calling out to a wayward son. But in this case, now we're going to deal with a husband, a, a husband that's watching his wife walk away from him into the arms of other men. So when we read this, just understand this passage out of Isaiah 1, even though it's, it's Mother's Day, and probably a lot of you again are still thinking, bro, you should have switched topics, the whole thing about, you know, the horror and whatnot, a bad thing for Mother's Day. But I, I hope what you'll see, actually, there's a phenomenal reality here, and it's not God that's sitting there railing at us and got his arms closed. It's a lament. It's a father, it's a husband crying out to his people saying, I am offering you myself. I'm offering you so much more than this world has to offer. But again, what he's now gonna say, he's wanting us to get and to grasp that this house of Jacob, my people, come let us walk. That's practical. Let us live life together. And here's the thing, in the light of the Lord, let's do it in such a way where we're no longer walking in lies but again, this is where he's going. And if you remember right last week, we talked about there being a problem that we really covered last week. We talked about a solution and the decision. And we're going to try to get at that today. So if you got your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 21 to kind of work through this, all right? So verse 21, here it is. Here's this word that we sought up there. And let's see if we can't frame what, what God's doing in Isaiah 1. Well, part of the problem is, is when you land down at this point, when you've degraded yourself in this downward spiral to the point where you land into this place that is Sodom and Gomorrah, he's now trying to help us understand that what you used to be, you've become the opposite. 
Now he's using this husband-wife language, I think, very purposely. In fact, he's not the only one that used this. When we, when we talk about Ezekiel, which is the kind of prophet of the next generation, about 50 to 100 years after him, he came along also and used so much of the same language in Ezekiel 16, where it was God calling out to his people. And specifically what he was trying to help them understand was is how low they were. In fact, the way that he describes them is wallowing in their blood. They were, they were the lowest of all low amongst all the civilizations, amongst all the cultures, but yet God, and this is one of the things I love about him, he loves to find the things that aren't so that he might put himself on display in the things that aren't because if he can show himself off through the things that aren't, he can show himself off through anybody. And he said, I chose you. He even talked about in choosing them that they, he said, I made you to flourish like a plant of the field. You grew up and you became tall. It says you, you arrived at your full adornment. He talked about that in Ezekiel 16. He said, not only that, but I, I made a vow to you. I entered a covenant with you. I wasn't a boyfriend somehow trying to come along and woo you and play little boyfriend-girlfriend games with you. I was a husband, and I made a covenant with you, and I love what he's talking about, and this becomes so important to where we're going. And you became mine. Now just let that settle for a second. The God of the universe says to a group of people, I made you mine. I was thinking about this, and I, I, I just remember, I don't know how many of you grew up playing like games with kids, and they would choose teams. Remember that? And you remember what it was like to not get chosen? Now, some of you are way too cool for school. You're like, what are you talking about? You know, I was the first one chosen. I was always there. But for those of us that maybe weren't, right, to, to not be chosen was devastating. But listen to me. God would choose teams so differently than we do. God doesn't take us because we have something to offer him. He takes us because he is God and he chooses us in spite. In fact, in spite would be a small under way of saying this of who we are. He said, I made you mine. Now what's so interesting in the story in Ezekiel 16 though is as he made them mine, he says, I came alongside of you and I made you beautiful. Your renown, he says, went forth all among the entire nations because of the beauty and, and even he says in there, it was perfect through splendor I bestowed on you. You were this nation that rose up out of nothing and people were looking at you like crazy but we all know that in every story, isn't there a but? But, but. And this is where Isaiah is coming from, and this is where Ezekiel is even coming from, this but, you trusted in your beauty, and he uses the same exact word. You played the whore because of your renown. You lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty, in other words, in what was meant to be mine, you gave to others. Now again, this is what I mean. It's not God sitting there railing against the people. Uh, the thing I'm hoping that you're capturing in this is this is a God that is passionately crying out like a husband that watches his wife go away or his children that run amok. He is crying out to them as one that loves them, wondering, what, what happened to you? And when we read Isaiah, when we read Ezekiel, this is what's so important. and This is going to be key to where we're going today. It is so amazing how much fear controls us. And in fact, whatever we fear the most tends to control us, and in its control then, we will give ourselves up to whatever might save us. 
no matter what it is. You see this all the time throughout life. Whenever somebody is fearful, they will give themselves to someone in order to be saved. And Israel, in walking with God, suddenly felt fearful as they watched the nations around them. And it says in there, out of that fear, both in Ezekiel and Isaiah, they gave themselves away to these other nations. And God is sitting there going, why? You've left me. And he says, in that fear, you gave to them something that was mine. They believed that that other things, other people could save them. And God is looking at them in this way saying, there is no way they can. I am the one that chose you, that loved you, that made you beautiful. Why are you running to those other things? And we're going to talk about this. This is important for us as we understand what it means to be God's people now. Fear is a powerful reality. Now we can look back on that and say, oh, that was the people from old, man. They were, you know, the Israelites, they were, they, were, they were messed up people. Let's talk about us. So the Bible also calls us uniquely and betrothed to Jesus Christ. We study 2 Corinthians, right? We are ones that are betrothed to him. He is our husband. He is making us beautiful. We find out from Revelation 19 and 21. One day, Jesus Christ is coming back to get his bride. And in that great moment, we will finally see ourselves for who we are and we'll see God for who he is. We are in an amazing, incredibly privileged position. We are, Ephesians 5, called the bride of Christ. And with God, as he looks down upon us, again, he's not a boyfriend flirting with us. He is fully committed to us. But have you ever noticed how quickly, and again, I am just as great of a culprit, the moment that we have fear, we run to almost anyone besides God. The moment that we have fear, we run to safety. The moment that we have wants and desires, we run to our happiness. The moment we we have all those different things and God would say, looking at us like he does in James 4.4, that you're committing this spiritual adultery, running after the people that can save you, that can't save you at all. And this is where Isaiah's going. Why have you forsaken me? I'm the one that saves you and loves you and adores you. And it's just God baffled that we do this. He starts off in Isaiah 20 and 21. It's a lament of God going, what in the world happened to you? They're fearful. They're trying to figure out what to do, and they want to be saved. Now, I typed in this week into Google. I said, what are people looking to be saved from? Are you ready for this? I'm going to give you what people are looking to be saved from and where they're trying to find it. The number one thing that came up that people are trying to be saved from is they're trying to be saved from the annihilation of our planet. Well, that's a pretty good one, right? Like to be saved from the annihilation of our planet. No one wants our planet to be annihilated. And then the answer to it is this. They're looking for salvation in science. Now, in that now, the hope would be that somehow that we'd save the planet, that they would, the answers would be renewable energy, that somehow in the midst of all of it, you know, even people were talking about we need to lose about half the people on our planet, almost went Thanos on them, you know, from Avengers. But it's this reality we are trying to now understand, how do we save ourselves? And listen to me, I am all pro taking care of our world, but saving our planet is not what we need. Others put in, they're trying to save themselves through the American dream. Holy patoli. The American dream. 
First of all, nobody really knows what the American dream is, other than generally what it means is, is I want happiness, I want contentment, I want satisfaction, I want safety, I want security. And then all of a sudden when, it's, when we want it and we're desperate for it, we will do anything to get it. And in doing anything to get it, this is God's point, why are you doing that? In fact, so much so, California, it is to the extreme. Over and over again, I can't believe how many people are saying, in order to find safety and comfort and security and happiness, I need to move to, I don't know, Tennessee. Tennessee? What's there? The Grand Old Opera, right? I mean, that's it. I need to move to Texas. I need to get out of here. That's what's going to save me. Listen to me. The moment that you try to find your salvation and leaving a place out of fear, you will find that when you get to the place you went, you will still have the same fears and insecurities and desires for happiness because those things don't save. Only God saves. We think government will save us. I saw a guy's t-shirt the other day, in Trump we trust. (laughs) Now again, I'm always respectful of every president that we have, and there's so many things I like what he's doing, so don't, don't, don't get me wrong, but I wanted to walk up to him and go, then bro, you're in big, gigantic trouble. We want government to give us health care. We want government to take care of us from the moment we're born until we die, missing the fact that the only one that can care for us in that particular reality is God and God himself. He decides the day that we're born. He decides every facet of every day. And the Bible in Psalm 139 says he decides the day that we go home to him. Why in the world are we fearing those things? But yet we sell our soul to it is what he means. And the whole point is, off of that, oops, I went too fast, is that instead of now being the people God intended us to be, he says in there, you've lost your birthright. A group of people who are to be full of justice and righteousness lodged in here. The moment that you begin to go after all these other things to save you, you start to lose the distinction of who you are as God's people. That's what he means by justice and righteousness. The Bible, or the book of Isaiah, all throughout it talks about this idea that justice and righteousness are tied to not only who God is, but now us being his people what marks us and sets us apart is that when we go fleeing after those other things to save us, pretty soon we take on the characteristics of the thing that we fear. And once we take on the characteristics of the things that we fear, we no longer are the people that God intended us to be in justice and righteousness. We've lost our birthright, just like Esau did for a bowl of soup. God's saying, don't lose that. And then when you get there, because of this point, you've now given yourself away. You've made all life about yourself. Your fear becomes, how do I protect myself? And in the protecting of yourself, you move down a terrible path where you start to not care and be concerned about others. You're concerned about me and mine and how I take care of me, which results then in what we see so rampant in the United States right now, where people hate each other, whether we're talking politically or class, whether we're talking racially, across the board, there's just massive amounts of hate within our culture and sadly the church if we're not careful we can begin to adopt that and the moment that that hate begins to land into who we are we start to then become what Jesus warned about and what John warned about in first John the moment that we hate we just become a bunch of murderers we've lost who we are but it's not just that 
See, when we land down at that point in this problem, he says your silver became, becomes dross and your best wine mixed with water. In other words, we went after sin. We went after these ones that were telling us in safety, this is what's going to make you happy. And by the time we got there, we thought for sure we would find such contentment and such satisfaction. We would find so much happiness. We would find safety. We would find security. And the whole point of what he's talking about, your silver becoming dross and your best wine with mixed water, you got there and you embraced it, and it was nothing. Blah. Ever noticed that? Like, we always think in the back of our head, if I can just get that, I will have finally made it. It's everything from serious to, I don't know how many of you, like, played sports in high school. I did. I just thought for sure, once I got certain, like, goals and I reached certain aspects of what it meant to be an athlete within school. I had arrived, but probably about three years ago, I looked at my letterman's jacket from like when I was back in the day. Anybody else just go, oh my gosh. It's just nothing. God has designed us for so much. He's designed us to be his people, his people of justice and righteousness, and we've sold our birthright, and when we finally get to these things that we think are gonna save us, we find out that it's just nothing. And then not only that, but in this bottom rung that we've hit, he says, woe to those who call evil good, those who put darkness for light, and light for darkness put bitter before sweet, sweet for bitter. In other words, then by the time we even get there, not only is it nothing, but our world is turned upside down all the time when I watch somebody, and I generally see this within people that have affairs, is they begin to think in their head, they lose the greatness and the goodness of God, they forget how incredible he is, they forget the extent to which he went to save them, to make him his very own, they begin to go to on a path that they never intended and by the time they arrive in an affair they're looking around looking and everybody going I don't even know how I got here but up is down and left is right we completely turned inside out that's the gist of what he's talking about just people that are completely turned inside out he says your princes and rebels and companion are companions of thieves Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts. In other words, we, we try to get what we want by taking advantage of others. They don't bring justice to the fatherless we, or to the widows. They don't, they don't uh, cause, they, they don't come to them. He's just saying eventually you're just devastated. So again, what's the solution? I'm glad you asked. I think the solution demands not only a question, but an answer. The question is the first week, what shall we do? I don't think God's people ask that question enough. We don't ask the question enough, what shall we do? What is it that's going to save us? I think instead, again, we run to other things to save us, and we begin to get into alliances with others and, and things that we never should. We don't stop for a moment, and we ask the question, what shall we do? Because within Isaiah 1 is a phenomenal word that I can't wait to show to you. The solution comes right after verse 26 in chapter 1. He's, he's arguing this through, and he says, you should be called a city, look at this, of righteousness, a faithful city. In other words, you will eventually be the one that I've intended you to be. And he uses Zion to represent this people, this Jerusalem and Judah that he's talking about, shall be, and I love this word, redeemed. Ah, oh, it's a great word. Whenever we see this word redeemed, I think sometimes, you know, we forget the fullness of what this word even actually means. 
This problem that we faced all since Adam and all since the moment that, that, that God created humanity and put him onto this earth is that the moment that they sinned, we needed God to redeem us. This word redemption is huge. Now, in order to understand it, again, he's going to give us a vision. So in some ways, then, we have to ask two questions about what does it mean to be redeemed. We need to ask, one, what is it not? Because that's very important. We're going to talk about that. But second of all, we need to ask what it is. And then we're going to look at what Isaiah says about it. So let's look at what it's not. I typed into the word into Google this last week. I typed in redeemed, and one name came up, Tiger Woods. Now, did anybody watch the Masters a few weeks ago? Okay, good. You're saved. Now, so I was watching the Masters, and I hadn't seen, like, golf for a little while. But anybody that knows Tiger Woods knows he's one of the greatest golfers to ever play the game. We also know that he took a downturn, but this was the one word that popped up, and I want to get, not because anything against Tiger, but I want you to see what redemption is not. It's written by this guy. I don't even know who this guy is, a guy named Stuart Varney. Uh, he, I found it on uh, foxnews.com, and so nothing against him, but this is everything that redemption's not, okay? Let me just make sure we understand that. He said, just a few years later, Tiger had fallen, First, it was personal problems that spilled out into public view, and he left the game for a year after an emotional public apology. But he couldn't come back to the game because of an injury. He had a bad back. That's a serious problem for a world-class golfer. He had a brief comeback, but the back problem wouldn't go away, and again, he withdrew. As a last resort, he had a risky fusion surgery, and it worked. Tiger had been given another shot at greatness, and he took it. Last month, he won the Masters. And Monday, in a special ceremony on the White House, in the White House Rose Garden, he was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Mr. Trump said Tiger was a legend, and so he is. My point is this. Redemption is possible. Tiger Woods knows the depths. He's been there, but with guts, honesty, perseverance, and a lot of talent, he came back. He was redeemed. There's a lesson here about America and this country. If you do the right thing, you can come back. Redemption it's possible. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Well, in one level, I love it. There's something about redeeming stories, right? I love movies that have redemption to it. The other night, I was bored out of my gourd, and I had my kids sitting there, and Casablanca came on. Remember Casablanca? And remember the bar scene, right, where the German guys are all playing their songs, and all of a sudden, the French start singing Marseille, right? And this woman that used to be hanging on, the, on a German soldier, she suddenly stood up and starts singing and redeemed herself in that moment, you know, and you're like, yay, redemption, right? You just love redemption. We love to watch something that is not go down in the ashes, and come back out of it. That is something that is so beautiful about the way that we understand redemption. Again, but. See, this word redemption, God's salvation for us, this is what an aspect of what it is. It does have in mind something that was, that became not, but it's not now about my hard work, my guts, me trying to make something happen. In fact, when you look up at Isaiah 129 through 31, every group of people that has ever tried to redeem themselves, to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, to try to make it right with God, to try to redeem themselves, they might get a small glimpse of it like Tiger Woods did, but I promise you, and I don't know salvation, where Tiger Woods is, but if he doesn't know Jesus, 
Jesus Christ, I promise you when he stands in front of God one day, it does not matter how many masters he won or PGA championships or US Opens or the Open because it's no longer the British Open. If it doesn't matter anything along those lines, if God did not redeem him, he stands in a terrible position. See, the Bible is never about self-redemption. If it's self-redemption, then I receive the glory. If somebody else redeemed me, they receive the glory. But God knows in this ultimate scope of things that the one who grants redemption, this one who saves, this one who protects us from the fear that's out in this world, this one who sits in unapproachable light with angels proclaiming his glory over and over again, no other thing, no other person can save. Only God saves, period. And this is what he's talking about. That's what redemption is not. So what is it? When understanding what it is, in one aspect of it, it's to pay a price for something. Right? Anybody's ever heard that before? Redemption, God paying a price for us and at his expense to be able to now draw us to himself. No doubt it is. There's an aspect when we understand how does God do it? How does God redeem? How does he save? He purchases us back, but he purchases us back from what? Well, the reality is in this downward spiral, the Bible talks about that over and over again, every time that we sin up against God, Romans tells us that we are storing up wrath for that day that we stand before him. Now, just think about this. That one who sits in unapproachable light with angels all around him, we are storing up wrath for ourselves against him because of our rejection of him, our choosing to live our life however we want to, disregarding him, having nothing to do with him. At the end of it, we stand before him. We do not want to stand before him without redemption. It's a purchase which says, and it now becomes very personal in a cost, that God says you cannot pay that cost. That cost is way too great. You have offended an infinite and an eternal God and to in any way think that you can stand before him one day and then tell yourself that I can self-redeem myself or others can redeem me outside of God. You are completely lying to yourself. And so therefore God in his immense grace, because he loves those of us that are his, came and sent his son who's Isaiah 53 says with a suffering servant and instead of now us receiving the wrath that was owed us Jesus Christ bore the wrath that was owed us and in bearing that wrath now we might now be purchased by God made one of his very own called sons and daughters of the king most high by the way that's cool that's redemption now that answers how but oftentimes we forget to ask the question, saved to what? See, generally we stop there. I'm oh, cool, man, I'm saved from, I'm now purchased, it's cool, I will no longer now face the wrath of God. And we miss the fact though that we are saved to something. See, when we talk about it in this context, when he talks about the idea now of redemption in 127, he's not only talking about what we're saved from, but now what we are saved to. We talk about this from Ezekiel, I made you mine. Now, everything within us, if you're anything like me, I hate the thought that I belong to someone or something. We, especially as Americans, we hate that. 
But the Bible says you're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. There's no way in between it. Something always owns you, whether you know it or not. Now, the beauty of what he's saying here, though, is by purchasing you, I have made you mine. And in making you mine, that's what Paul was talking about when he says, now no longer are you your own. You were bought with a price, so now glorify God in your body. In other words, those that are his, now this is so important, that he now purchased and made his very own. He made his very own for an incredible purpose that we might glorify him or that we might be the people that he intended us to be. He did not just save us, again, like I've said, to avoid hell. He rescued us and he redeemed us and purchased us out that we might now be these people that glorify God, that make much of him by being the people he intended us to be. I see many of you in here that maybe you're college or younger. Let me just say this to you and then the rest of you that are older like me, you can just listen in. Listen. The world is going to tell you that somehow in order to be adequate, you need to go get all these things. You need to get the best house. You need to get the best car. You need to get the hottest wife or the hottest husband. You need to get two and a half kids. You need to get a dog and a cat and a, tar, car, a, 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 a tree swing. You need to get all these different things in order to be satisfied in a 401k. I'm here to tell you, it's not that those things are bad. It's not as if somehow you have those things, they are evil. But Jesus did not save us for just this. He saved us for something so much more. The grand reality that those of you that are younger and those of us that are older can buy into is that we were saved to be the people that God intended us to be. And we were given the Holy Spirit to pull it off. He's saying, don't sell your birthright for something so small when he's offering you so much. We are way too easily satisfied with little things. And God says to us, he says to Israel, I am redeeming you. Now that redemption is important. That redemption has two sides to it that are so big. One is God's part, and I'm going to finish with this, and one is our part in this whole idea of a solution. When we talk about God's part, one of the verses that's so key to this is, is he just says, therefore, my beloved, Paul's kind of talking about this. As you've always obeyed, watch this. So now, not only my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we could stop there and think this is all my action, but listen to this last part. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So now in saving us and redeeming us in, in this solution of making us his very own now to live in such a way that we bring glory to him, we live how God intended us, there's a part that we play, but there's also, most importantly, the primary part that he plays. And Isaiah gives us how that works. In Isaiah 1.9, the work that God plays, watch this, if the Lord of hosts had not left us, a few survivors. Now that wording is so phenomenal. If you can imagine for just a second something in ashes, that's what Sodom and Gomorrah is supposed to remind us of. This place that is just in absolute ashes that is nothing. It equates to zilch, zero, nada. And God looks down on that and says, in the midst of that ash, though, I really believe there is redemption whereby which I can make something from nothing. 
Here's who God is in the action that he does. He loves to take what is not and make it incredible. He loves to take people like you and I that don't deserve it, that have stored up wrath, that their lives are in absolute chaos, then devastation. They are just ash. And like the phoenix, he loves to come into that ember and breathe life into it. And out of it comes the phoenix. God looks into who we are and again, from a vision standpoint, sees not who we are as people look at us, but sees who we could become in his power and his might as he transforms us into the people that he wants us to be. Never forget this. Our God is not settled with us just being not a nothing zilch ashes. Our God loves to come into that to spark growth and to shape and to mold and to give life to something that wasn't. Every single one of you in here that know Jesus Christ, you know that. You know of this incredible God that did that in your life. That's what God does. Now in this redemption, he also does something else. In order to make you the person he needs you to be, he also has to clean you up. He's got to cleanse you. Now this verse is so interesting. He says in there, come now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, now, the idea of scarlet is important because it gets rid of any concept or idea whatsoever that I can cleanse myself. Because back in the day, this particular scarlet, once it got into fabric, you couldn't get it out no matter how it was. It was just absolutely going to stay in this fabric forever. And what God says, though, is, is that even though your sins are like scarlet, look at this, I'll make you as white as snow. No matter what the sin. I'll do this. That means if you're sitting here today and you're carrying around devastating sin, let me just tell you, God's point in that is there is no sin that is too great for him to be able to forgive and to cleanse you and to make you as white as snow. Or even in this, you should become like white, white wool. He looks down into every last one of our lives and realizes every single one of our desperation to be transformed and made clean. Now we also wonder then, why does God make us clean? Because if he doesn't make us clean, then we can't be in any proximity to this holy God who sits in unapproachable light. If he doesn't cleanse us and make us whole and make us different, if we go into his presence, we would be absolutely and utterly destroyed. But yet in his goodness and in his greatness, the book of Isaiah conveys this idea that though Though we were sinners, this one, the suffering servant, came, took away our sin so that we can now be in the very presence of God to know him and love him and be with him. In redemption, we have to be with him. God didn't just spin this whole salvation thing so that, you know, okay, cool, you're not going to hell. Well, good. We'll see you at the very end. I hope it turns out really well for you. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. No, he has been since the very beginning, since Adam and Eve fell, seeking to bring us back to him. Why? Because he wants us to see his greatness. He wants to see us to see his awesomeness, his transcendences. He wants us to see him in all of his glory so that we don't get bored with him and then begin to, get, to begin to gain ourselves in things that this world has to offer. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to be able to come to him so that we can be blown away by him. And as we are blown away by him, we become the people that God intended us to be. That's why he does it. There's a third thing here that's important. The other aspect of it is, is that our God is going to deal with the mess. 
Now let me just settle this down for just a second. He says, therefore declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one Israel, look at this. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Who are his enemies? In this whole redemption process, who are his foes? Well, he explains it a little bit further when he talks about those within them. Here's one of the scariest things in the world. Let me just help us to feel this before we can get back to the solution. Right now in this room, the Bible tells us is that my prayer would be that everybody knows God and loves God and follows God and adores God. But the bottom line is, I know in this room not everybody does. He's calling you to encounter him now. I know for some of you, you're sitting there going, yeah, dude, just shut up and get done with this. I came for Mother's Day like she asked me to. No, just listen. To not come to this gracious and loving father and husband that adores you and cares for you. The idea is, is that one day, if you don't encounter him then and experience him and know him and live with him and experience his amazing healing and the way he transforms us into the people he intends us to be, if you stand before that God one day in his presence, you will not be seen as a child, a son, or a daughter. You will be seen as a foe and an enemy that he is winnowing out of his church so that his church might be the people he intends them to be. And let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't want to stand before that God. For those of you maybe that say, you know, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, that God's cool and whatnot, but you know you're playing games with life. I promise you when you stand before him one day, game over. Right now, right here, he's calling you to bend your knee He's calling you to receive that redemption that only Jesus Christ offers. He's willing to buy you and to make you his very own, to cleanse you so that you can know him, so you can be the people that God intended you to be. But in his work, just understand this, he will, verse 25, turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross and with, as with lye, remove all your alloy. He is going to one day take all those that don't know Jesus and he's gonna remove them out of the way so that the the only people that are left, there are those that know Jesus Christ. You don't want to be there one day. I know I've always talked about the fact this isn't just fire insurance. I'm now telling you there is so much more to life, but you have to come to him today. Don't just sit here because it's Mother's Day and say, yeah, I came not. I think you are here for a strategic reason and a strategic purpose to hear this message. There's a God that adores you and loves you and is crying out for you. And he's crying out for you. It is for you to be the man or the woman God's intended you to be. But in that, for the rest of us, he says, I will restore your judges at first, your counsel at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. He's pointing forward to one day. He's not talking necessarily fully about right now. He's talking about the day that he returns. So what's our part? Here's the key thing in there. Ready for it? One thing. Repent. That's an old word. Who says repent anymore? The only people that say repent are like those 
people on TV that are crazy preachers. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Within repentance, it has multiple ideas. But one of the ideas that it has, first and foremost, is this idea of to listen to God. See where he says, hear and give ear? Listen. If you're sitting there today and God's word has come upon you, listen. See, Jesus would talk about it. All the prophets would talk about it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For those of you that are out there that are even followers of Jesus Christ and you know you've done this downward spiral, today is the day to hear that this great and loving God, this God of redemption is crying out to you. He is not now got his arms crossed looking at you like you're the biggest loser on the planet. He's calling you to hear and even sometimes God has to shock us and I think that's why he called them Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes God just has to flat out shock us. They would have heard that and it would have been so offensive, but God is trying to get their attention. Do you hear me? But even when he gets our attention, sometimes we don't hear. One of my favorite authors on just the idea of listening to God is a guy named A.W. Tozer. He said, to a people caught in the tempest of the last great conflict, God says, be still and know that I'm God. And he still says it as if he means to tell us that our strength and our safety lie not in noise, but in silence. Part of this repentance thing is we've got to drown out all the other noises and voices that are out there. These ones that are saying, I will save you. There's only one voice that will save you, and that is the good king, the holy one of Israel. That's the only one. But even still in that, there's another side of us that I think A.W. Tozer captured that's even inside of this book of Isaiah, is that most Christians don't hear God's voice because we've already decided we're not going to do what he says. Listen. The second aspect of it, he throws out in all these different commands that come our way, but at the end of it, if you just look in the middle of it, cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's the gist. See that in the middle of 16 and 17? In one end of it, what it is, is it's turning away from something. Christian talked about this a few months ago. It's turning away from something, this evil being who God never intended you to be, to be the good, being the people that God intended you to be. It's a willful choice to turn away. It's this burning of the bridge. It's choosing never to go back that direction before and put everything you have into pursuing who God is. And the decision, and here's where it's important. Verses 18 and 19, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good land. If today, all of us in this room, because I don't think any of us is not fearful of something, I don't think any of us is not trying to find satisfaction and safety and happiness outside of God, every single one of us, if we're willing and obedient, in other words, if we quit pursuing those, if we turn away from evil and we come to him, we will eat of the good land. In other words, we will become the people that God intended us to be. But if you refuse and rebel, look at this word. You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You either eat of the good land, or you get eaten. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> but it's serious. Let me just talk to moms as I finish. Moms, I so adore you. 
But I see so many moms frantic trying to keep the ship alive. Trying to figure out what to do with these crazy kiddos that they have. I mean, not my kids, but like your kids. You're frantically wondering around, how in the world are we going to ever do these things? How are we going to keep on top of it? How in the world are my kids going to stay safe? How in the world are my kids going to become the people God wants them to be? How in the world, heck, am I just going to be able to get my daughter out of bed this morning? It's every aspect of it that weighs on you incredibly. And I'm here to tell you, moms, you can shut off your worry motor. You can shut off your concern motor. You can shut off all these things that drive you so nutty. And instead, you can come to this incredible God, this God of redemption, that loves your kids extremely to more than you will ever love them, that has them to the very end, that will take care of them in a way you will never be able to take care of them. And even as they run, run wayward in all kinds of different directions, and even as you have a, hus a husband that says he's trying to help, but you know at the bottom of your heart, he's really not really helping a whole lot. You can return to the incredible God of the universe who loves you. Who will teach you to be the woman, the mother that God intends you to be. So here's how I want to finish as I bring Billy up. I'm just going to finish with these questions. And if you got your phone, take a picture of them because I want you to really think about them this week. In what areas of your life do you believe you have lost an accurate view of the immensity of God and or significance of who he's called you to be. Just think about an area of your life. One of the things that's hit me personally that I've lost this on is I think over and over, I forget as a pastor, I don't need to be the pastor everybody wants me to be. I need to be the pastor that God wants me to be. And that's hard sometimes. Especially some of you, man, you're difficult. But here's the second one I want you to do. This is really important. Where are you believing that things, people, other than God, can save you or others? Where? Now again, this could be anywhere. I sometimes think that my wife can save my children, but she can't. I sometimes think even looking at this church that I love and I adore, I can't save you. But man, sometimes I get a Messiah complex and I try to save you. I can't. I get fearful. And in the midst of all of it, I lose sight of the fact God sent his son. He died for you guys. He loves you way more than I do. He has you. But where in your life do you struggle? Now, for some of you, you're sitting out there, and I know where you're at. And I'm going to have some leaders right now come up in front, and there's going to be some men and some women to pray with. And I know some of you are in a hurry to get out of here, maybe for dinner plans or whatever, but some of you are experiencing the fact that you know you're not the man or the woman God's called you to be. You've lost sight of the greatness of God. You've, you've lost who he's called you to be. You're fearful. You're, you're, you're struggling through how to live this life, and they'll just be up here to pray with you. For the rest of you, you can pray all alone, but just know... Man, there's nothing better than to come and just have somebody pray over you and to confess your sins and to repent. So all of us will be up here. Billy's going to sing. Take advantage of this moment. Cry out to God. All right? You with me? You with me? Okay. They'll be up front. Here we go.